Well, this is tonight will be section, uh, session six, so we're halfway through this uh, semester after tonight, <clears throat> and uh, springtime's coming, that's good news. So let's pray and we'll dive in. Father, thank you for your word, thank you for this study that'll help us understand how to better communicate the gospel with those who do not know even the beginning of the story, much less the end. So, Lord, I, I thank you. I ask you to bless us tonight, open our minds to see and understand and grow together in Jesus' name. Amen. The Jews and the Gentiles. Um, and I think I need to say something tonight. T during this video, you're going to hear him say Greeks and Greeks and Greeks. And, and that's just a reference to Gentiles. It's not just... It's, so I thought about that when I was previewing that. People go, what's the big deal with Greeks? The, the Greeks were a, a, a biblical reference to non-Jews. That's all it means, okay? So <clears throat> Jews and Gentiles, or Greeks, like all of mankind, are all looking for purpose and meaning in life, even if they don't want to admit it. Everybody's looking for the same thing. I, I don't know anybody unless there's something wrong with them that says, you know, I'd like to have a life that is devoid of purpose and meaning. It, it doesn't make any sense. Everybody wants a life that has purpose and meaning. The question is, how do I get there? Because there's a lot of people that say that they have different strategies how to get to the place where you can find purpose and meaning in life. And something beyond this life, eternal life. So the core scripture tonight's 1 Corinthians 1.23. It was last week as well. The Apostle Paul's writing to the church and he says, So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But does that mean we stop preaching Christ crucified? No. Because we believe that's the only way to a life that has purpose and meaning. And it, it, it doesn't matter what somebody else thinks about that message, we believe that it's the message of truth. We preach Christ crucified. It is the core of the gospel. But to some, it is offensive. You think? To some people, it's a stumbling block. To some people, it's just foolishness. It's like we're simpletons. I mean, in fact, I heard somebody one time say, you're one of those that waits for the white horse to come out of the sky. Yeah, really? Yeah, well, that's me. Did the Jews believe in God? So what's the difference when you approach the, the Jews, biblically speaking, and the Greeks, or those who don't have the historical background of biblical knowledge? Did the Jews believe in God? Yes. Yeah, they did. Of course they did. But they stumbled over and were offended by Jesus as the only way to God. They stumbled over. They tripped over it. The, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. They tripped over this, this rock. He's the rock the, that makes them stumble, the stone that makes them fall. They trip over him. Why? Because he's between them and God. And they want to go around him. Well, you can't go around him. So here he is. And the Jews were searching for God, but they couldn't see Jesus as the Son of God because he didn't look anything like what they thought a king would look like. A king would look like David, right? But he's a humble servant. 
So what do they do? They stumble over him. So let's go to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Did they believe in God? Which God? You see, that's the problem. Which God? They don't have the foundation of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The creator God. They don't have that foundation. To them, the whole thing might seem like foolishness. One group had a foundation or a beginning, which is Genesis. The other group had no concept or foundation, which made Jesus and the whole thing, the whole message, foolishness. And we're living in a generation where the academic elitist of our day look at all of this as foolishness. And I don't mean anybody who's smart thinks this is foolishness. That's not it. I'm talking about people who have rejected the gospel. They, they have a worldview, but when you put our message, Christ crucified, in their worldview, it's foolishness. It doesn't make any sense. The book of Acts reveals the birth of the church, which will and is right now revealing to the world the second coming of Jesus. And by the way, that's the essence of the rest of the, the book of of the New Testament. What is the message of the New Testament? Jesus came. He was the sacrifice for sins. The church began. He left. He's coming back. Get ready. There's the New Testament. That's it. You're going to meet him one day. Peter in Acts 2 has a very different approach than Paul in Acts 17. Why? The starting point. The audience had a different starting point. The Jews in Acts 2 had no problem with Genesis. Everybody, everybody pay attention to this point. The Jews in Acts chapter 2, Peter is standing on the Jerusalem temple steps, I suppose, and he's addressing obviously thousands of people. Because 3,000 people accept Christ. So there's thousands of people. They don't have any problem with Genesis. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Yahweh, the God... Jehovah, the one who made the heavens and the earth, they don't have any problem with him at all. They're not going to argue with Peter about that. Their problem is with Jesus. And you know what's interesting to me? I just thought of this. You know, that's still the same today. The Jews in the world today don't have any problem. Most of the Jews, I'm not going to categorically say that. Most of the Jewish people, especially Orthodox Jewish people today, don't have any problem with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob or the Genesis story, or Noah's flood. But they cannot yet see Jesus as Messiah. So on, in Acts 2, it was the same thing. It's the same thing today. In fact, the best way to deal with Jewish people today is to take the Old Testament and reveal Jesus as Messiah. Because they accept the Old Testament. The Greeks, however, in Acts 17, had a problem with both. So when Paul comes to Athens, Greece, and he tries to preach to the Greeks or the Gentiles, he can't just jump and start doing the, what the, the gospel Christ crucified, because they're not going to understand any of that because they don't have that biblical foundation. Let me give you an example. I remember, I'll never forget, by the way, preaching at Glensboro Christian Church Revival long, 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 long time ago. And it was a sermon that I titled Jesus and the Word. And in that sermon, I say, do you believe God created the heavens and the earth in six days, six 24-hour days? And some guy in the audience shouted, no! 
there was a hush in the room. I had a Greek in there. He rejected the notion of Genesis' account of creation. He rejected it. So when I asked a question, thinking everybody in the room, thinking wrongly that everybody in the room was a, had already had the Genesis foundation accepted as truth, one guy did not. So when I asked what I considered a rhetorical question, he did not think it was rhetorical at all. He's like, no. By the way, he came up and talked to me afterwards. Immediately, I know what people are going to think when I say that. Does it really matter how long it took as long as we believe God did it? Because, listen, I've had these conversations over the years. Come on, preacher. Why do you make such a big deal out of Genesis 1, six-day creation? So let's ask the question. Does it really matter how long it took as long as we say God did it? Here's my answer. It might not, it is not, it, it, it is not in itself a matter of salvation. You're not going to stand in front of God one day and he's going to say, okay, here's the test. Was it six days? Out. That's not it. I, I don't think that's got anything to do with it. It might not be a matter of salvation in your generation, but it might be a matter of salvation in the next. Listen carefully. This is important. Maybe for you, it's not a matter of salvation. But what happens when you reject the literal interpretation of Scripture, Genesis, for example? What happens? The authority of the Word of God has just been rejected. And I'm going to show you something in a minute that's going to surprise some of you in this room. See, is it a matter of salvation? No, I don't, in itself it's not. The problem is, if your generation, if my generation rejects Genesis and takes on something else as the origin of man, we just told the next generation that the authority of Genesis, it's not God-breathed. So maybe the next one, they, they write off Exodus. And maybe the next one will write off Leviticus. Because you know what? I don't know how to do all that Leviticus stuff anyway. And then Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges. And what about Ruth? You see, it's an erosion of truth. It starts with the literal six days. And, and listen, I've told you all multiple. I, I don't struggle with this. I don't struggle at all with this. In fact, you put them side by side, put them side by side, just from a common sense perspective. God breathed into existence. God, and all, a God who has no beginning, who has no end. He is everywhere all the time. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-everything. Once I come to grips with that, I don't have any problem with him going, and a universe comes out. I don't, I'm not struggling. Okay, so let's put that over there. There's the six-day creation over here. There's an explosion. And all the stuff from the explosion flies throughout, and eventually we appear. Which one should we be struggling with? Which one has the most difficulty making any sense? See, I think it's far easier to believe that God created 
than it is that all of this just happened. It just happened. And by the way, uh, we'll get into this later sessions, <clears throat> but when <clears throat> scientists attribute creation to the Big Bang, they don't even know it, but they're acknowledging God. Because here's why. Where did the material from the Big Bang come from? Where, where, where did, everything has to come from something, right? Where did it come from? Well, it just was here. Really? How did it just get here? So here's what happens when you do away with the six 24-hour day creation thing. It starts with the literal six days, and then if you, can, if you can rationalize that one out of existence, what about the flood? Huh? What about the flood? Was there a literal worldwide flood? Well, then we move to a literal one-man Adam into a slimy pool of ooze that produces a tadpole, that produces a monkey, that produces a man. And the reality is the churches are full of people today that believe that. Does it matter? Can you accept, so let's get more specific with the question. Can you accept evolution and Jesus at the same point? Is this a point of salvation? Please wait before you answer. It's not a trick question, but I want you to think deeper than the surface. Can you accept evolution and Jesus side by side? Because a lot of people do. Is that theologically, fundamentally possible? Well, let's take a test. If, when I say you accept Genesis, Jesus, I'm assuming you accept that he's telling the truth. Right? So it's not fair for me to say that, well, you accept Jesus, but you just think he's a liar. So if you say, I accept um, evolution, but I accept Jesus. I think they're compatible because I have people telling me that, that they reject Genesis, but they accept Jesus. They're compatible. That's what they tell me. My question is, then do you believe Jesus is a liar? No, I believe Jesus tells the truth. Well, then you're going to struggle with Matthew 19, 4. Matthew 19.4 is a Pharisee, that's a religious Jewish guy, comes to Jesus and says, can we divorce our wife anytime we want to? And Jesus answers the question, Matthew writes it down. What's he say? I told you a minute ago, some of you are going to be surprised by what I'm going to show you. Because maybe you never thought of it this way. Jesus' answer to him is what? Haven't you read the scriptures? Now, before I read to you the next part, you've got to get the first part. What did Jesus just do to that Pharisee? From Jesus' perspective, what is truth? This. What's his answer? Can I, what's the authority, yes or no? Can I, can I divorce my wife because she burnt the, it wasn't the bacon, by the way. They don't do bacon. Because she burnt the chicken. Okay, what, what? Didn't you read the scriptures? What's the first thing that reveals to you? There is an authority. Then, what's the second thing? They record, the scriptures, they record that from the beginning. Is anybody with me? From the beginning, 
God made them male and female. Now, I'm going to tell you what, evolutionists will never put man at the beginning. But Jesus puts man at the beginning. The beginning of what? The beginning of the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, I, oh, I, I believe in Jesus, but, but I believe in evolution. Well, then you think Jesus is a liar. Because he says that the scriptures, didn't you read the scriptures? Well, we weren't talking about creation. No, we were talking about divorce and marriage. But Jesus reveals an authority. Didn't you read the scriptures? Because the scriptures clearly record, and they are authoritative per Jesus Christ, they record that from the beginning God made them male and female. So it's not just Matthew. Here comes Mark. Mark also writes it down. What's Mark say? He's actually writing down Jesus' words. But God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. So I'll ask you a question. Are you sure you believe in Jesus? Are you sure? Were you there in the beginning? Was anybody there in the beginning that you can get a testimony from? One. And if you reject the testimony of the one that was there in the beginning, can you honestly in good conscience say you believe in him? Good question, isn't it? All right, let's watch the video. Revealing the Unknown God, part two. About 25 minutes. I've had new believers come to me and ask a question. I don't know how many times this has happened. Where should I start? And I'll just tell you, traditionally I'll say, read the Gospel of John. Is that a mistake? It depends upon their background. I'm not going to send them to Leviticus, okay? They'll quit the church. But can you ever understand John if you don't understand Genesis? So let me answer that question with the full context of the Apostle Paul's Jew-Greek discussion to the church at Corinth. It's, um, it's verses 18 through 23, and I want you to notice something. T two things. Paul's approach, number one, and number two, Paul's view of Scripture. So, but I've got to ask you a question before I do. What was the Scripture that Paul had a view of? It wasn't Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians 6. They hadn't been written. Or they weren't canonized. They weren't where he could have referred to them. So when Paul refers to the Scripture, when Jesus says, haven't you read the Scriptures? What's he talking about? What's he talking about? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. He's talking about the Old Testament. So, Notice those two things. Here we go. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it's the power of God. What's the power of God? The message of the cross. What is the message of the cross? It's the gospel. What is the gospel? It's good news. Right? 
It's the good news about Jesus. It's foolishness to the world, but those who believe it, it's the power of, it's what? It's what? Don't read over it. It's what? Power. It's the power of God. What? What's the power of God? The message of the cross. Okay? It's powerful. And then he says this, and the scriptures say, where's the power? From Paul's perspective, where's the power? A message and the scriptures say. Where's the power? Where's the power? The message and the scriptures say. What? He's going to quote Old Testament scripture. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers? Today, where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom. Did you get that? God decided, not me, not you, God decided that human wisdom would never find him. So if you're looking on intellect or wisdom or yourself to find God, you'll never find him. Let me read it again. God saw, for God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, through intellect. Never. Never will they find him. So if they're not going to know him through human intellect, how will they ever know him? There's a comma there. What's next? He has used foolish preaching to save those who believe. And what do foolish preachers preach? This book. You don't find salvation with intellect. Foolish preaching. And why is it foolish? Verse 22. It's foolish to the Jews. Why? Because they asked for a sign from heaven. Lord, if you are who you say you are, do something. And you know, I can kind of hear God saying, I did. I did. I did. His name is Yeshua Messiah. That's how the Hebrews call Jesus Christ. Yeshua Messiah. I did. Why don't you do something? It's foolish to the Jews because they asked for a sign from heaven. And it's foolish to the Greeks. Why? It's different foolish. The Jews believe in God and they want God to do something. God says, I already did. But to the Greeks, what do they want? It's different. So they don't have the foundation of God. It's foolish to the Jews who ask for a sign. It's foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. They want to find God through human enlightenment. It's not there. In fact, let me tell you, God saw to it that you'll never find him through human enlightenment. Never. So, verse 23, what's the conclusion? So when we preach that Christ was crucified, that's that foolish preacher stuff, right? The powerful, foolish preacher message. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended. Some translations say the, it's a stumbling block to the Jews. They trip. And to the Gentiles, what? Nonsense. So I'm going to do something. I hope it's important to you because it is to me. 
I put 10 things on this paper. Just I pulled them out of my head. Ten, pulled out of my head. Do you think the academic or political elitist of our day believe any of these 10 items that I pulled out of my head? I pulled 10 things. And, and I'm going to ask you a question. It, are these 10 things readily accepted as truth? And, and I'm going to take it a step further, even in the church. Here we go. 6,000 years ago, God created with his word all that is, and he did it in six 24-hour days. See, I think, yeah. Question number two. I feel like a game show host right now. God literally formed Adam from the dust of the newly created earth in the image and likeness of the creator God. Nope. See, I think yes. Number three. God literally breathed into Adam life and handed all of his marvelous creation over to him. So, I'm only on three questions. If you're going to try to communicate the message of the cross with people who say to the three, where do you think you ought to start? Number four. I'm having fun. Number four. God then put Adam in a deep sleep and literally pulled out one of his ribs and from that rib created the first woman. <laughs> you know, I smile because if I tell an unbeliever this, they're looking at me like, is there something wrong with you? And I say, no. I don't, I, yep, I think, think, yeah, that's what happened. Number five. They literally, Adam and Eve, literally experienced God on a daily basis until Satan came and deceived Eve and caused the first sin to enter mankind. Oh, it gets better. Number six, they're kind of linked. Sin caused death. Not the environment. Sin caused death. It is still the reason that people die today. No other reason. Sin. No. Which one's right? I've told you. Let me, let me, let me take a Just hold on number six for a moment. I've told you several times that some of the people I have had the most angry at me. And listen, this is kind of a hard competition these days. Some of the people I've had the most angry with me have been in funeral homes when I said... Sin is the cause of death. Whoa. Now, I believe there was a time that I could go to any funeral home and say that, and I would never face opposition. Not in, not in Kentucky. But when I say that now, wow, zee wow. I, had a, I told you, I had a lady throw a chair. Not at me, but she just threw it to get out of the room. I mean, I got the point. What? Sin equals death. Now, why would it, if you go to that, why would you ever repent of your sins? 
But if you came to the conclusion that sin is the cause of death and that sin can be forgiven, whoa, what would happen? <gasps> You'd have life, right? There's the gospel. There's the gospel. All right, number seven. Curses were issued by God to Adam, Eve, and Satan, uh, Satan and creation. Adam, Eve, Satan, and creation itself. And time went on until God became weary of the days of men because they were only evil all the time. Number eight. In that day, God told a man named Noah, who was around 500 years old, <laughs> they'll already do that. I don't even get to the end of this sentence. I'm not going to get past the comma. 500 years old. That God said he was sorry that he had ever made man and made a plan to start all over with eight people through a worldwide flood. <laughs> okay, number nine. Shortly after the flood, the eight people have multiplied into a large group that again refused to obey and follow God and began building a tower in a place called Babel. One more. God looked down at Babel, which we believe is the origin of Babylon, which we also believe is the origin of all idolatry on the earth. God looked down and forced a worldwide dispersion by confounding their language and forcing them to scatter. Now, you know what I just did? I just summarized the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. That's what I just did. Wasn't that clever? I just summarized the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and here we go. Do you believe this? See, I do. I really do. I, I, I don't struggle with a single one of those. Zero. I'm okay. Now, here's what's big. Here's probably the biggest thing I'm going to tell you tonight. Why is this important? Why, do I, why does Terry Cooper believe those 10 items? I'm going to give you an example, just an example. Because Jesus, in the New Testament, quotes Genesis 1. He quotes Genesis 2. He quotes Genesis 5. And Jesus, Luke, Peter, and the Hebrew writer all talk about Noah. And if I'm going to say I believe in Jesus... I might ought to believe in Jesus. I might ought to believe him. I find it to be hypocritical to say I believe in Jesus. And Jesus talks about Genesis 1, but I don't believe in Genesis 1. And Jesus talks about Genesis 2, but I don't believe in Genesis 2. And he talks about Genesis 5, but I don't believe in Genesis 5. Sorry, Jesus. I'm smarter than you. And he talks about Noah's flood. And it will be in the end like it was in the days of Noah. Why? Why do I believe that? Because I believe the Bible is the very Word of God, the only physical source of absolute truth. Man's Word versus God's Word. And I'll just end with this. I hear Jesus saying to that Pharisee who's coming. I don't know if the guy is being legitimate or he's just trying to trip Jesus up like a lot of them did. But he's asking a question. And Jesus' answer, listen, this is, this is big. To me, this is like, wow. Jesus' answer is what? Haven't you read scriptures? 
Next. Next. Come on, next one. Haven't you read the Scriptures? Next. What, what, what about, haven't you read the Scriptures? Next. Uh, what about, haven't you read the Scriptures? Next. What, what, well, what about, haven't you read the Scriptures? Next. Well, no, I didn't read the Scriptures. Why not? Oh, you know what's even worse? You know what's worse than that? You read them and you didn't believe them. Hmm. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that reveals the truth of your word. Thank you for the privilege of having a copy of your word in our language. Now I pray, Father, that you would write these words on our heart. Not just on pages, but in our hearts so deep that, Lord, we would live these words. We'd live under the authority and the power of these words, for they truly set people free from sin and death and give life forever life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.